0: Welcome to this podcast today. I'm absolutely delighted to do this podcast. It's been one uh, that certainly myself and Anna, and indeed Elise, who's joined us today, have have wanted to do for a little while. So, what we're going to do is a podcast really aimed at primary care. And I think many of us, you know, certainly. In this space, but certainly the three of us on the call at the moment feel that this is really something that we as an oncology team haven't done enough for, if we're entirely honest. Um, And so today I'm delighted to say I'm joined by uh, Elise Lang, who's the Macmillan Clinical Advisor for Wales, but also the primary care lead for Valindra. And I work very closely with Elise and have done on a on a number of projects. Um, those of you who haven't listened to uh, a podcast before um, by myself and Anna or watching this on a different platform, uh, my name is Ricky Fraser. I'm a consultant medical oncologist at Valindra Cancer Centre um, and I co-lead the Immunotherapy Toxicity Service uh, for South East Wales and we're going to talk a little bit about what immunotherapy toxicity is today. Uh, and delighted to be joined also by my colleague and great friend Anna Olson-Brown, who's also a consultant medical oncologist uh, in the Clatterbridge treating skin cancers and sarcomas. But uh, more importantly for today is the lead for the immunotherapy toxicity service there. And in fact, um, Anna in the Clatterbridge has what is really the exemplar service uh, for what immunotherapy toxicity management should look like and, and has an international profile in this space. And so what we're going to do today is really we're at uh, Elise's disposal. Uh, We're going to let Elise really ask us anything she likes, um, including those things that that maybe we don't think about as oncologists. um, And and we're there just to answer them as openly, as honestly as we can, and hopefully think about how we really support primary care teams uh, in a better way moving forward. So Elise, I'm going to hand over to you really, and you can ask anything you want that you think your colleagues in primary care would want to know.
1: Thanks, Ricky. That's a powerful position to be in, isn't it? Um, so I guess I start with the fact that you know primary care and community care is is very broad. It includes you know GPs, practice nurses, district nurses, pharmacists, paramedics, and most of us in an undergraduate setting didn't get any teaching about immunotherapy, and maybe wasn't even around or being used at the time that we went through training. Um, so a first and a very open question to you would be really what is immunotherapy how does it work what do we need to know
0: fantastic question and it's a sore of question i love to answer but often do it in about 25 minutes um so so i for me immunotherapy is really using the immune system to fight the cancer so it is what it says on the tin in that sense we know the immune system can fight cancer in the same way that it fights bacteria or viruses but we know it's just not very good at doing it and there's different mechanisms in the body that basically stop the immune system being able to to kill cancer cells And so what we're doing with immunotherapy, in essence, is trying to get those immune cells. So again, thinking back to medical school, those sort of T cells, the lymphocytes in the body, but other cells as well, excited to recognize those cancer cells as abnormal. Um, Because, you know, by definition of the fact that they're cancer cells, they've often got abnormalities about them, abnormal proteins within the cell. And it's about getting those T cells to recognize the uh, cancer cells as as foreign or abnormal, take the brakes off the immune system and allow that immune system to to fight the cancer. So that's in essence, for me, what it is. It's really just using our own body's immune system to fight the cancer. It's not chemotherapy. and, And that's you know a message that I think we need to be really clear of. this is not chemotherapy. it doesn't work in the same way as chemotherapy. It doesn't have the same side effects as chemotherapy um and we're going to talk about that no doubt as we go and anything you'd want to add to that?
2: um yeah, I think it's just about sort of thinking about what that means and and the way that the reason immunotherapy occurred why it exists is because we sort of got to the end of the road in terms of the 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 exceptional benefit we were going to get from chemotherapy um, and actually we really wanted to understand what collectively sort of made cancers cancers what features did they share and we know that a huge number of different malignancies irrespective of whether they're breast cancer or colon cancer or a, a lung cancer or a skin cancer um, quite a, a high number of them evade immune description destruction. So actually it is by suppressing the immune response that means they can become established. So we thought from that perspective that actually if we could block that, that evasion and actually then for reintroduce the immunosurveillance that we all have, that actually we may well be able to allow for the first time ever the, the person, the host, to be able to actually essentially treat their own cancer with the right support. So I think that's important for two reasons. One, a- about that fact that it's not chemotherapy, it's not a direct drug cancer interaction it's a it's a drug person interaction and then a person cancer interaction so it's a it works in a slightly different way but also um, I think the reason that we are obviously excited and spend a lot of time dealing with these patients is that actually it means that we're using these drugs across the treatment landscape in most cancers now and um, so you will almost certainly at some point in your practice come across at least one person but probably many that have been treated with immunotherapy because they are adding so much to the treatment outcome and the treatment benefit.
1: So Anna, if, if it's not chemotherapy, and that's something that we've got to be clear with with the community, um, how is it delivered
2: and where do the patients get it? So would, could they be having it in their own home? so it depends on where you live so yes you absolutely can so there's there's a few things about that so firstly it's mostly still intravenously delivered um, and people still have them in what we call cycles so oncologists have this sort of really weird dialogue that doesn't really make a great deal of sense but essentially they will still have one dose given every few weeks anywhere between every two to every six weeks um, and they will still normally come into a cancer cancer delivery center but that can be in a in a hub some people deliver those in uh, in sort of 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 uh, delivery units in car parks of of supermarkets so it's quite a safe drug to deliver certainly has less infusional side effects than chemotherapy so we often deliver these these agents um, all over the place but yes certainly in certain parts of the country and including my my region we deliver these uh, these therapeutics at home um, and also to some people we can deliver them in the workplace. The other thing that is is that there is very soon to be a subcutaneous version of one of our immunotherapy agents. So we are moving closer and closer to delivering these pa- the, these drugs to patients in their own home and in a, in a, in a non-travina setting. But at the moment, the majority are still having IV infusions in in a treatment hub somewhere.
1: Fantastic. Um, what are you to either of you, really? What What are you seeing in terms of outcomes with these kind of new techniques and new new deliverables? One and I'll let you take oh,
2: it. This is the best question. I was like Ricky could tell was getting excited by the look in my eyes. Um so I think this is the reason that um that oncologists get really excited about these drugs. Um the outcomes are um anywhere from phenomenal to pretty good. And it depends a little bit on the patient and the tumour group. But we have seen for some tumour groups this completely revolutionized care. So um both Ricky and I are, are, are skin cancer treaters, we both treat melanoma, and in that setting, immunotherapy has completely changed the landscape. So patients that were diagnosed with metastatic melanoma um, Um, say, before immunotherapy existed, had a 20% chance of a one-year overall survival. So 20% of them would be alive one year post-diagnosis. We're now in a setting where we've just had a seven and a half year uh, readout of our data with immunotherapy, and we're looking at around 50% of people being alive at seven and a half years. So it's completely changed the way that um, patients uh, have in terms of their prognosis and the way that we're treating them. I think, again, we see really good gains in other tumour groups. There may be slightly less, the other thing is that for us to get the absolute benefit from immunotherapy in other areas and we are combining these drugs with with other agents such as chemotherapy or more targeted tablet therapies so for some patients they get benefit and really good benefit from the drugs on their own. For others, we're using them in combination with, with with other agents. So patients will sometimes be on two or three drugs to get the most benefit from, from their, their treatment in terms of their cancer outcomes. But they are changing things from, from months of prognosis into years of prognosis in many. The Other thing is that we're now giving it in the curative setting. So we're giving it to patients both what we call adjuvantly, so after they've had an operation to try and prevent the cancer coming back, but also now also something called neoadjuvantly, where we're giving patients immunotherapy and often chemotherapy together to downstage their, their malignancy before we do an operation to in- increase their chance of cure. So whereas before it was just a small group of patients in it with, with metastatic disease in the palliative setting, it's now across tumour groups and across indications, um, all the way from, from curative through to, through to palliative. Anything to add, Ricky? Uh, yeah, so I just wanted to add one
0: thing, um, which is the point that Anna made about typically being used in the palliative setting. I guess it's almost that term that we've got to be careful with nowadays. So it, of those patients, though, so that seven and a half year data that Anna's just alluded to, and that 50% essentially still alive, many of those patients will have stopped treatment. So probably about three quarters of them will have stopped treatment. And we think, and we don't know, but we think that that curve, you know, when we look at survival curves, things that oncologists like to do, that curves pretty flat from three years and three quarters of the patients aren't on treatment and many of them have no disease. So we think And and we're allowed to say it on a podcast like this, but we're not normally allowed to say it, (laughs) that, that we're curing those stage four metastatic patients. So that's a paradigm shift. That's patients with, let's say, lung mets and liver mets. When we first meet them, that we're now saying they're alive at seven and a half years, they're off treatment and we think they're cured because of the point that Anna made earlier, because they don't need the drug anymore. The drug was there to get their own white cells to grow up and, and walk around the body and find any cells, any cancer cells it sees. So the idea is that immune surveillance, those immune cells that we've created, a bit like you do when you have a vaccine as a kid and you create a, 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 a an immune system that knows if it sees it again, it can get rid of it. It's similarly, we think that we're doing a very similar thing with cancer and that's, for me, is amazing.
2: And I think, Ricky, that one of the things that's really interesting, isn't it, is the fact that we we used to, and we still do in a lot of cancer care, and I think uh, also people when we're thinking about cancer patients is that we go, is this curable or is this incurable? And I was discussing this just this week about the fact that certainly in those groups that get really good benefit from immunotherapy, we're now got a third group where when you start, you don't know the answer to that question. And so actually we're start we're starting to have to really communicate things like uncertainty. So we don't know when they begin, whether they're going to be in a seven and a half year survival group or whether they're going to not get any response at all. And so we, we have to talk about prognosis in a very different, Way, and I think without the understanding of the, the reason we're doing that, it feels like we're sort of shying away from having that conversation. But actually, it's very much that we don't know, and if we if we prognosticate incorrectly we can either give people a terrifying prognosis which turns out to not be true and they go and spend all their money and do all their things and think they're going to die very soon or actually we give them extensive hope and and actually we see we see no response so we have to be increasingly conscious of the fact that we can't prognosticate up front very easily and also we have to sort of introduce this concept of uncertainty it's not because we don't want to say what's clearly obvious it's that actually it is no longer in fact obvious um, and i think that's a really really important point when certainly when you're seeing people in your practices and we've written letters and you go well yeah but actually what how long are they going to live for sometimes particularly in the first six months of treatment we just don't know the answer the more they progress through treatment the more we see their response and understand the t- tempo of their cancer we get much better at understanding where w- what direction of travel this individual person is going in but we, it actually now needs to be an individualized approach to prognosis because we just can't do it in a collective manner anymore
1: I can definitely see why you're excited about the question on outcomes then both that is, you know it's amazing <laughs> isn't
2: it? It,
1: it, it it is completely different to how probably most lay people and you know in, in an under, undergraduate setting how I was educated about malignant melanoma certainly so it is it is fantastic and um, you've touched a bit on the fact that there's a timeline and in that people hopefully will respond and then they may be considered cured but what would be the timeline on terms of how long someone would be on treatment for
0: yeah no great question the first thing I should say is two years of treatment is is lots of the different indications nowadays, but some of the earlier indications at least, were essentially you can use the immunotherapy for as long as it's having benefit
2: yeah I think if I, if I just sort of add on to that I think the reason that those early, those early indications exist is we just didn't realise or know whether we were going to get these outcomes. Um, And so I think, you know, we've we've sort of modified things over time. Um, I think there's lots of conversations in the community about whether we should be thinking about restarting after a patient's stopped, if we then see their cancer progressing. And that's a, that's a really hot topic um, for conversation in those indications that you can't, you can't carry on treatment for. Um, So I think it's, it's, and also I think that the the thing is that the immune system is a very personal thing. There's lots of things that affect it. There's lots of things that sort of change um, somebody's immune system and the ability to respond to to, to um, antigen over time. And so I think one of the things we're grappling with in the oncology community is, is how long is, it, is long enough. So we have this sort of arbitrary figure of two years at the moment. We're treating it to that, to that level if a patient's responding. Um, but actually, there'll be some people that only need a very small amount of immunotherapy and and others that need that constant stimulus to the immune system to continue to be able to be um, getting benefit from their immunotherapy. So I think it's one of the things that we're working on quite extensively in the field at the moment is to actually understand how long is, is the right length of time. And actually, is that different for different people and certainly for different cancers? So this is at it as it stands at the moment, but I think it will change over the coming few years.
1: Fabulous. And one thing we haven't touched on at all is is what
2: are these drugs called? What are we looking for in letters that come back? That's a really good question. So um so I tend to break it down. So if a patient is on an is on an oncological therapy, so they're on treatment for cancer, they're on a drug that ends in mab and has an l in the middle of it then that is a really quick fire way of working out whether you're on an immunotherapy so pembrolizumab nivolumab ipilimumab atezolizumab they all have an l in the middle and a mab at the end there are some mabs that are not in the oncology setting that similarly follow that pattern but if they're on cancer treatment and they have that that grouping then you can be fairly sure that that's an immunotherapy and then obviously you can reach for google but that but that's a that's a really easy way of, of identifying them in the letters Fabulous.
1: and what i feel that time may run out on us on but what i'd like to ask really is is what about side effects so we've heard about all the good stuff haven't we but what what harm can these drugs do and what should we be looking out for in the community
2: yeah so i think um, I'll, I'll probably go first, and then Ricky can, can add. So this, this is what Ricky and I spend an awful lot of our time sorting out and, and the reason our services exist. So the side effects are um, are really important because they're different from chemotherapy side effects. So essentially, they happen as a result of the fact that we've stimulated the immune system. And so people get inflammatory type side effects so they can get... Um, very organ specific toxicity, but they often present in a relatively mild or vague way or patients can feel relatively well with their side effects. So um, the things we we sort of way we think about it is we break it down into symptomatic and asymptomatic side effects. So symptomatic toxicities can be things like colitis, so people can present with diarrhoea, they can get a rash, they can get arthralgia or myalgia. They can get breathlessness if they've got inflammation of the lung pneumonitis. They can get tingling their fingers and their toes um, and they can develop some some limb weakness. So, all of those things, and it's a, and the problem is it's sort of a huge constellation of, of, of different things. Essentially, any organ can be affected with these inflammatory side effects. Um, the asymptomatic things, we generally speaking pick up in the cancer center um on blood tests. So before every cycle of treatment, patients will have a blood test to to certainly evaluate their kidneys, their endocrine function, um, their Potential to develop to develop diabetes and also um, what their liver function is doing. In some centres, they'll also have their their cardiac health checked as well. It depends on where and where the patient's being looked after. So we are very aware of the fact that we can cause inflammation of of any organ. The key really is is there a change from the patient's baseline? That is the that is the most important way of evaluating if somebody's got side effects. Um, but they are completely different to chemotherapy. We don't get we don't get huge amounts of nausea and vomiting. We don't get really entrenching fatigue. People don't get neutropenic sepsis. They get inflammation of their organs because their immune, their immune system, if anything, is supercharged as opposed to suppressed. Ricky, anything to add about side effects?
0: What I would say, and, and Elise knows because I've said this at most of the talks I've given for her, is, you know, name an organ, put itis on the end of it, and that's a side effect we might see. So it can inflame the liver hepatitis, it can inflame the lungs, pneumonitis, it can inflame the bowel, colitis, it can inflame the kidneys, nephritis. Most of the effects we see are reversible if we know about them soon enough. It's that you in primary care and in general know that there are these side kind of effects if we manage early can be life threatening, and I'm always very clear with my patients, they can be life threatening, but nearly always reversible. The irreversible ones, which tend to be the endocrine, are really life threatening. But obviously, you can leave patients, as Anna said, with a long term, you know, dependency on either a thyroid replacement or an adrenal replacement or an insulin replacement. And so, uh, so there's, and then, and no doubt in the next podcast, because I'm going to bring this one to a close at this point. We should really talk about some of those late side effects and how we can be better at making our primary care colleagues aware.